This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, the General Services Administration is on a mission to transform federal buildings into energy-efficient facilities. It recently received a big boost in funding. The agency's administrator discusses how the money will be used and the projects already underway. And the Department of Labor just launched a new program to promote workers' rights across the world. The head of the program joins us to explain why the U.S. is getting involved in the issue and what's in store for this year. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. The federal government is the largest energy consumer in the country. Last year, it launched an initiative to reduce federal emissions to net zero. The General Services Administration is leading the effort to transform all government buildings into sustainable facilities. Robin Carnahan is the agency's administrator. Administrator Carnahan, welcome to the program. Nice to have you. Thanks. Great to be here. So what does achieving net zero emissions mean for federal buildings? It means that we're going to be leading by example in the federal government about what's possible when it comes to changing the portfolio of our energy use. You know, as you mentioned, the federal government uh, is the largest buyer of electricity and energy in the country, and we can sort of change the market and have an impact on that. So it's GSA plus the Department of Energy plus the Department of Defense that are the big buyers. And so one of the things we're trying to do is figure out how to have carbon-free energy. Right, that's a trend all around uh, the United States and the world, um, and it's growing in the private private sector and the private utility companies. So we're working with them to be able to make sure that government buildings are able to buy that carbon-free energy. And the president has a goal of by 2030, 2030, for all of our energy to be carbon-free. So what does that mean? Are, are you just going to be slapping on solar panels on 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 federal buildings? It's really an all-of-the-above approach. It will be some, some of those, but this needs to be utility scale, right? This needs to be utility companies doing this kind of work. So we've entered into an agreement already uh, with one of the major utilities uh, in the South. It's called Entergy. It's in Arkansas. And the idea is to make it so all of our federal facilities in that region are able to have, it's called 24-7, renewable energy and so what that means is we're matching our demand to their supply of carbon-free energy and it's fantastic so what we're going to do is have a what's called a green tariff with the utility uh, uh, regulators in Arkansas and the cool thing is once the federal government has that tariff that says we want matched carbon-free energy for all of our our facilities private companies can buy into that as well. So it really is sort of leading the market on this. And it's not just solar panels, it's whatever's carbon-free energy. So part of what's in, in the supply in, uh, in, at, at energy in Arkansas is nuclear. So it is really an all of the above approach when it comes to uh, getting energy independent and having it be carbon-free. Well, let's talk about the funding, because GSA received nearly $3 billion. 3.4, um, actually. Uh, so over $3 right. billion from both the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and the Inflation Reduction mm -hmm. Act. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a general breakdown of, of that funding? Yes. 
So it's about three and a half billion, uh, the infrastructure bill, and a lot of that money primarily is gonna be used for land ports of entry. What does that mean? That's border crossings. And so we're gonna be upgrading 26 border crossings on both the northern and the southern borders. Smart because it's good for security, right? It's good for supply chain, it's good for the economy and just sort of general ease of movement back and forth across the borders. Um, so three and a half billion dollars, working closely with Homeland Security on that. We also have 3.4 billion for, from the Inflation Reduction Act. That's primarily focused on these, these uh, renewable and sustainable initiatives. We're gonna be able to leverage these funds together and make a real difference on some things. I was just in Arizona. At, yeah, tell me about yeah, that trip. So it was very interesting. I was there just before the holidays and it's the second busiest port, land port in Arizona. Three million people and two and a half, three million th cars and two and a half million people cross that border every year. It's a big place for migrant workers that come back and forth and most of our winter, I learned, most of our winter lettuce comes from the workers that do things in southern Arizona and cross back across that border every day and every night. Um, so we're gonna be investing there. It's the first tranche of money to go out in the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, and we're gonna be able to make that a net zero building, which is incredible, uh, and also like meet all the needs of the Department of Homeland Security. So we're really excited about it. Um, that is an area that has, they told me, 360 days a year of sun. So you talked about solar panels. Makes a lot of sense for us to put that there. It and is what, sunny in Arizona. And so what this means is this is not just about the sustainability. It's about good jobs. It's about building a clean energy economy. And it's about saving money because in the end, all of these investments save money because we're lowering energy costs. You know, I, I do want to ask you about all that, but there's a lot of projects out there. There's mm -hmm. a lot of uh, ports and things that need upgrading mm -hmm. and, and buildings. How do you prioritize? How do you select which ones get funding? Yeah, that's a great question. So some of that comes from Congress, right? So there, we, we see that in some of our budget bills that come through. Uh, some of that comes from our partners, so the Department of Homeland Security can prioritize which of the projects need the investments to help them meet their mission. And when it comes to the, the sustainability money, right, we want to know, we want to figure out where we can have the biggest impact, right? We have a huge portfolio that has lots of different kinds of buildings, uh, but we know that we can up some investments that move things to lead platinum instead of lead gold or could be fully renewable. Um, and so we want to have some marquee projects that show what's possible. But overall, the goal here is job creation, saving money for taxpayers, and helping the planet. Administrator, when you say saving money, uh, these, these things cost money yep. to retrofit buildings, Correct. to bring in uh, green mm -hmm. technologies. How do you balance the cost that's going in yep. with the potential savings? Because yeah, it's not necessarily going to save money, especially in the short run. So you're right. Investments take time. It's the same in our homes. If we think about if you upgrade the windows in your house, it takes some time for that to pay back. But over time, it does. And so the, news, the good news here is for, for the federal government, we, have, we own these facilities for a long time. So for us, it makes sense to make investments that are going to lower operating costs. We've do, been doing this for years. I was out in New Carrollton back last year with Secretary Granholm, and you know, we were able to do some basic things like changing out light bulbs and putting in new chillers and making it a smart building and adding some solar panels. We cut energy consumption by 60%. 
that changes the greenhouse gas emissions of that building and it changes the cost to taxpayers. I was up in Portland, Maine. We have a 150-year-old custom house building. We put in new heat pumps in that building, cut energy costs by 30% by doing those investments. So we're just gonna be doing more of those kind of smart things because these are buildings that are gonna be around a long time. We wanna make them efficient. All right, administrators, stand by and we'll okay. continue uh, after this. Coming up next, we'll continue our conversation with Robin Carnahan. She's the administrator of the GSA. We're back with Robin Carnahan. She's the administrator of the General Services Administration. Uh, Robin, you talked about um, there's something called low embodied carbon. What does that mean? Funny you should ask. I didn't really know what that was a year ago, but it turns out it is a big deal. So if you think about emissions, you think about you burn fossil fuel in your car and there's an emission, or you turn on your heater or air conditioner and there's an emission because you're burning some kind of fuel. So that's, that's a type of emission but, and carbon, but embodied carbon is a little bit different. It's the things that it takes to build the house. It's the things that it takes to build the car and what is the carbon that is emitted in that process. So that's, that's how you should think about it. Turns out, this is a really interesting fun fact, that of all the fleet, and GSA has one of the biggest fleets in the country of cars, one of the biggest portfolios of buildings in the country, of all the emissions of our cars and our buildings, what we buy, the carbon that's emitted from that, is double. So that's why it's a big deal. That's why you want to get a handle on the embodied carbon. And so we got in the Inflation Reduction Act $2 billion of that 3.4 to have low embodied carbon building materials. What does that mean? So the big emitters, of the stuff that we buy is asphalt, concrete, glass, and steel. So if you think about land ports of entry, they're gonna have a lot of asphalt and concrete and steel and glass. And so if we can reduce the carbon it takes to build those things, um, we are reducing greenhouse gases. And so it's been really interesting. I visited an asphalt plant. Who would have thought I'd be interested in this, but an asphalt plant uh, out in Arizona when I was there. We've already used them uh, for some of the work. And it turns out you can reduce the uh, embodied carbon of these projects by 40, 50% with hardly any change in cost by just doing some smart recycling. So we're excited about it. The other funny thing, let me just tell you, is I was out at a meeting not long ago giving this talk, and there were a bunch of Girl Scouts there, and they had hats on that said, ask me about embodied carbon. So <laughs> this is the thing, this is the thing. It's a thing now. Yes. <laughs> well, you had mentioned that the, these projects are going to be job creators. Yes. Give me a little bit more information. How many jobs will these create? Yeah, look, the you're always doing job estimates and creation ex estimates with these things, but we predict that this is gonna create uh, 10,000 jobs annually, these investments here in the United States, American jobs, so we're excited about that. You have already completed some building projects. Talk about the timeline from funding to breaking ground to completion. Yeah, look, we all know building projects take some time, uh, and it all depends on, for government projects, how much of it gets funded, right? So sometimes par it's partially funded and you have to wait a little while. Uh, but we're expecting these things to really kick into gear because the funding we have, particularly for the land ports of entry, is enough to get these projects done. So we are in the planning stages, and, and you know sometimes it requires acquiring land, which 
means you're dealing with folks in the communities and uh, we're try to be good neighbors and make sure that uh, uh, we're we're thinking of all the equities uh, in the communities that we're serving. So it takes a few years, but trust me, folks are really excited about it and some of the projects are already moving. Well, speaking of that, talk about the state and local level a collaboration mm -hmm. that you'll need to do. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I come from state government, right? So that's that's the thing that I think about all the time is how these federal investments can help leverage sort of interest that is already happening in these communities. And, you know, I was visiting uh, Portland, New Hampshire not long ago, and there's a federal facility we're disposing of that's in the middle of this town um, that's going to have a huge impact uh, on the community. And so we just need to be very intentional about how we do that. And it's in Toledo recently, and we were able to help the, that city as we did an expansion of a courthouse uh, with some urban planning. And it's going to just catalyze development in a whole new part of town. And so it's pretty exciting for me as somebody who, as I said, comes from state and local government to see the, the federal government actually being pretty helpful with this. And, you know, Made in America is a big push mm -hmm. for the administration, yep. as is protecting the supply chain. Yes. So how is GSA incentivizing that local manufacturing for all these new materials that, that need to be created? Well, this, look, we, we're, we're always looking for opportunities to create jobs in the United States. And when we have production in the United States, that's the best way to do it. I was just recently, uh, as mentioned, Toledo. I was out there with Secretary Buttigieg at a, a, a hot briquetted iron, it's called, uh, plant. And it used to be a brownfield, so, you know, closed up, messy place that they've turned into a low-carbon iron facility, which, what does that turn into? that low embodied carbon steel and that's rolled steel that makes cars and these are great jobs in america and so when we talk about buying low embodied carbon stuff we can be doing that and driving this green energy economy so that's what we're focused on so nice to talk to you thanks Thank so you. much more government matters is straight ahead we'll be right back This year, the Department of Labor is rolling out its multilateral partnership for organizing worker empowerment and rights. It's a program called Empower, and it's meant to promote workers' rights abroad. Thea Lee is the Deputy Undersecretary for International Labor Affairs. Thea, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So what's the central mission of Empower? The central mission of Empower is to really lift up and strengthen workers' rights abroad and in particular the rights of freedom of association and collective bargaining and the reason is that uh, protecting workers rights to form independent democratic unions is central to democracy building and that's so important for this particular administration and and what in I, I mean I understand that you're talking about it, it promotes democracy but what really prompted the creation of empower now well um, a little over a year ago, Secretary of Labor Marty Walsh uh, was at the Summit for Democracy, and we were thinking about what's labor's contribution to international democracy. And the one thing that we thought was the most important was the ability of workers to form and join independent unions. And so we wanted to take some of the work that the U.S. government is already doing, the State Department, the U.S. Agency for International Development, and the Department of Labor, and really focus both in terms of external messaging, what this administration values, what we care about, what we prioritize, and then also bring together some like-minded partners because of both the, um, the potential for doing some great work abroad 
for lifting up workers' voices, and then also the importance of addressing some of the threats that workers face, some of the obstacles. That's what I wanted to ask you. What are those threats? What are the issues that workers abroad face? Well, unfortunately, in too many countries, uh, workers who are trying to form independent democratic unions face sometimes violence, legal obstacles, threats. Uh, some of them have been jailed, fired, harassed, beaten. And so what this project is doing is to make sure that we are bringing together like-minded governments, unions, civil society from all over the world, as well as philanthropy, to make sure that we are supporting both workers who come under attack abroad and then also when a government goes in the wrong direction, is trying to weaken its labor laws, trying to take away rights that workers have to join independent unions. You know, Thea, some cynics would say, look, the workers here in the United States need a lot of help. What's the U.S. government doing meddling in the affairs of workers overseas? That's a great question, Mimi. And the, I think what my my emphasis on this is that we need to do both we can't choose one or the other I spent 20 years in the labor movement here in the United States working for the AFL-CIO the American Federation of Labor Con Congress of Industrial Organizations and as we try in the United States to make sure that we are protecting workers rights to organize and to form unions and to bargain collectively one of the things that we find is that if we are embedded in a global economy where workers don't have those rights then we are going then American workers are going to have a hard time exercising those rights so we we think this is essential to the jobs that we have at home of protecting American workers, making sure they have good jobs, that they can bargain collectively, they can raise their voices, but that also that we are part of a global economy where workers can exercise those same rights. So you believe that the, the rights of employees overseas actually impact workers here in the United States? There's no question that they do. And one of the ways is obviously we're in a global economy. We have trade agreements. We have a lot of uh, goods services, capital that flows across international borders, if American workers are in direct competition with workers in other countries who are put in jail, beaten up, or even killed for trying to organize a union, it's going to make it a lot harder for them to make that argument that they deserve to have a union here at home. And I saw that time and time again at the bargaining table or workers trying to organize and manufacturing in particular, but any kind of global uh, market, that this is going to be the, the kind of terms of competition that American workers face is very much impacted by the, the terms of competition that workers around the world face. So how does the program work? How does Empower work? So Empower is a commitment, first of all, on the part of the U.S. government to spend about 120, up to $130 million over a couple of years to support and strengthen workers' rights to freedom of association and collective bargaining. We have more partners from philanthropy who have put in another $100 million. And now we have just as of, uh, I think, December 8th, we, we announced new government members to empower. So we have the governments of Argentina, South Africa, Germany, Spain, and Canada who have joined as founding partners of Empower. So what this is going to be is a convening and a coordinating of like-minded governments and civil society and union organizations that want to support workers around the world. We're going to be able to meet and choose targets and to be able to uh, put our resources to the most efficient use possible when we are supporting workers and their goals. And, and you mentioned a few countries. Will you be working in countries that maybe aren't signed up for this program or that really need, uh, th th those workers really need your help? 
I think there are going to be two different kinds of, of work that Empower does. One is helping workers who are under threat, um, that are jailed unfairly. For example, we have a Cambodian labor leader named Chim Sitar who's been put in jail. She's been trying to organize casino workers in Cambodia and Phnom Penh. And she's been put in jail without, without bail. So one of the things that Empower will do is bring together diplomatic uh, energy from all these different governments and civil society organizations and unions to support her and to make sure that we brought attention to that case. The other thing, we'll be looking for opportunities where there might be organizing that's happening. In Lesotho, for example, there's been a new commitment among unions and women's rights organizations to uh, have a binding commitment by some of the companies there to respect workers' rights and women's rights. So those kinds of opportunities might be a way of jumping in and reinforcing some of the good work that's starting to happen. All right, Thea, thanks so much for being on the program. Mimi, thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And don't forget, you can find every episode of our program on YouTube. Be, be sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss any of the videos we post. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gargis. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber, and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites, and these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be 
predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right, well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi, nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.